Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 welcome to today's episode of California Haunts Radio. I am so excited back my name is charlotte before i start getting excited my name is charlotte i'm going to be your host for the next hour i'm also the owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento we're 35 strong up and down the state and we also have people in washington oregon nevada and washington i'm sorry i said that already hawaii (laughs) i am so excited tonight i have a guest on who i've been looking forward to talking to for a long time and it goes way back with me because when I was a kid growing up, I was a tomboy, and my dad fed into that. And I remember growing up, even you know, eating my little Lucky Charms, and he had old die, these old die-cast airplane models, and, and these and these things were for for the for the Navy because because the wings would fold up, you know. And so I had Corsairs, these old Corsairs that I used to play with as a kid. And so it started back then. But what I didn't know till much later was that my dad after leaving the Coast Guard at the end of World War II, went to work for Boeing in Seattle. And so he had worked on, on planes. Now, I, I don't think that they made it, may, may have been military, I don't know, but he knew airplanes inside and out. So our big thing on the weekends, either go to the end of the runway at the airport here, Sacramento, and watch the planes. And then he, or, or before they had all the security stuff now, you know, after 911, you know, walk around the airport and just look at the planes, and he'd tell me all the parts, all the struts, everything, everything on the planes. Or we'd go be at the end of the runway and hang out and watch. Or we'd go over to over to McClellan Air, Air Force Base because McClellan was right, was right down the road here. You know, and, and watch those planes. And then what topped it off was we were, we also were at the we we had another base here that had all the B-52s here, on ready to go. So you could you couldn't get close to them, but you could get to a certain distance with binoculars to see and, and see the real cool B fifty two uh, strato fortresses that were out here. So then then that led to every air show, everything like that. So I grew up around planes. I was a plane nut. You know, we crawled all over those things, the C five galaxies and all that stuff. My dad had me crawling all up and down that. In fact, he was very excited because about eleven years ago, just before he passed away. I got the opportunity to fly on a B-29 from Stockton back to Sacramento. And so he was really stoked. In fact, he dropped me off at that airport that he hurriedly drove back to McClellan and waited for me to land with the video camera in hand. So he was real excited. So I have been playing crazy all my life. And then I took my own team over to Castle Air Force Base for an investigation of their haunted B-29. And what did I see parked in front of Castle Air Force Base? SR-71 Blackbird. It was cool. And I remember seeing the SR-71 Blackbird at the Lincoln Air Show. And my God, I've never seen a plane, little flame like that going straight up in the air. At least it seemed like that at the time. Even my father was impressed. You know, the thing practically turned on in and went straight up. We never seen nothing. But then that's when he looked at me and said, well, you know, that's going to be the end of that plane because they're flying it all over and showing people. So it's probably going to be declassified. But I tell you, I grew up around this stuff. And then I had a cousin in the Navy. We would come to San Francisco. If he was in town, he'd take me on personal tours of all the you know aircraft carriers and everything. 
So, I mean, I grew up around this stuff. So, I'm really excited to talk to the gentleman. Plus, you know, Area 51. He knows a lot about Area 51. James Goodall does. But I want to let him tell you about himself and his background. Because he's got a really interesting background. But that's just my two cents about the whole aircraft thing. Because whether it's military or domestic aircraft, I'm there. You know, I was raised that way. And I'm just playing crazy. All right, so let me get Jim James Goodall well, and then he can tell you about himself. Hey there, how's it going? Glad to be here. I'm I excited. Just, uh, and what is that behind you? I was noticing that when you were in the green room. I was looking around you trying to see. Oh yeah, there it is. That is my that is my A12 that I worked on wow. for 15 years. Yeah, wow. it was a minute. The whole time I worked on it was in Minnesota, but. Yeah, you know, my love, my love for airplanes started probably I was about five years old. And my dad came into the bedroom. We're living in San Jose. I'm a third generation San Franciscan, so I'm real familiar with your neck of the woods. <laughs> and uh my dad, I'd already gone to bed, but it was still light out. And he and he came into the bedroom and he said, I don't know what's coming, but you gotta get up and see it, whatever it is. So we went out in the front. Uh, we were in a duplex, uh, not that far from San Jose Municipal Airport. Now, this is 1953, 54, maybe even earlier, uh, a long time ago. And you could hear this roar, and the ground was vibrating. And over the Coast Mountains came not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s, the largest you know, the largest bomber in, in, in the uh, Strategic Air Command's uh, quiver of, of weapons. And I mean, I just, I couldn't believe my eyes. And, and and from that day on, I have been fascinated with machines, primarily airplanes, primarily Air Force, but I also spent all my, all my free time from the time I was about seven until I was about 12 at Moffett Field Naval Air Station. Oh my gosh, the blimps. Oh my gosh. And my best friend's dad was base commander there. And we were referred to as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his. Because we because <laughs> we pretty much ran, you know, we didn't go on the runway, we didn't go on the taxiways, but we rode our bikes everywhere. We we're in that we can go in all we went in all the hangars, primarily the big hangar one. And I can remember one day I went. I went up there. I went there almost every weekend. And during the summer, I was there during the week. We we'd go to the uh, the pool. They had a beautiful pool there on base. And and the um, Danny said, "Hey, there's something so cool in in the big hangar. We got to go see it." So we jumped on our bicycles. And again, like I'm seven at the time, maybe maybe a little bit older than that. But so we ride into the, into the big hangar. We come in on the uh, you know. I think it's an east-west uh, placement. So we came out on the west side, one closest to you know to Bayshore, mm -hmm. and at the very very far end. Now this hangar is eleven hundred feet long, four hundred feet wide, and four hundred feet tall. It actually can rain inside the hangar on a, on a humid day. It, wow. The moisture will build up in the ceiling, and you'll get drops. It's just crazy. But at the far end was an area that was. It wasn't roped off, but it was you know, big black curtains uh, in, in the area and a sign that says keep out. Not like the ones we have today, use of deadly force authorized. It was just keep out. But there was nobody there. And and we were invisible. We, we, we were there so often that no one even noticed us. 
So Danny said, come on, let's go. So we went behind the curtain and they're staring me. And it was still classified secret at the time was the Lockheed Skunk Works F-10, XF-104 Starfighter. Wow. I mean, it was polished. It was beautiful. It was right out of, you know, it was right out of uh, Buck Rogers. We walked around it and, you know, you didn't want to, you didn't want to touch the, the leading edge of the wing because Danny says, I think it's really sharp. It'll cut you. I don't think it was ever that sharp, but they did have wing protectors on it if it was on the flight line. So, you know, so Danny said, hey, get in the cockpit. Okay. You, I mean, you didn't take, take very much coaxing to get me to get in the cockpit. So we opened the canopy, uh, you know, moved the boarding ladder over. I get in, close the canopy. Danny lashes it. And I'm in there for about two minutes. Look, I'm not touching anything. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know at the time that you don't uh, put an airplane in a wind tunnel with a live ejection seat. And back then, the you know the original the original uh, XF and even the YF one hundred four had a downward ejection seat. Matter of fact, when, when Bill Park <laughs> Bill Park was flying at uh, I think near uh, Mud Lake near Tonopah, Nevada. Now this is real early in flight test, mm -hmm. and he was on the deck doing eleven hundred miles an hour. And the tail started, the, you know, the, the horizontal tail assembly started to delaminate and come off. And he realized he was going to lose control of the airplane. But he was only 200 feet off the, off the uh, desert floor. So he actually rotated the airplane upside down. Yeah, upside down and ejected. Oh, so you get ejected. At the okay. bottom. And he got out. And, and Bill Park was one of the Skunk Works uh, top uh, test pilots and he almost became a skunk works ace because he crashed the xf-104 he bailed out of uh the number one half blue which was a technology demonstrator for the f-117 he uh he was he was coming in on on landing on in an a-12 and this was the, the last uh operational airplane to be built and his hydraulic system froze up as he's coming as he's you know, come over, yeah, come over here. He's coming in for his final. The airplane just kept rotating, and he was about. The airplane was was literally straight up I and mean, wing up, straight up and down. When he realized there was no way he was going to get the airplane straightened up, so he ejected, and he made one swing, and he was on he was on the ground, and the uh, A twelve crashed not that far from him. There, this is at Area fifty one. Uh, I think had 10 hours on the airframe when it, uh, when they had, when he lost the bird. And then the, the last airplane was uh, uh, the M21 mother airplane, the MD21. There's, they built two mother airplanes to launch the drone. The drone was designed to fly over this, the former Soviet Union in China, fly over denied airspace. Where the Blackbird uh, flew at 2,100 miles an hour, the D-21 flew about 2,300 miles an hour. Wow. And the A-12, the CIA version of the Blackbird, it would go uh, uh, to 90,000 feet any day. Maybe uh, straight and level. I think the, the straight and level, the highest one ever flew was uh, 92,500 feet. Bill Park, when he lost the A-12 that he was in that had 10 hours on it, he wanted to see how high it can go. So he zoomed 
to about 96,200 feet. And that's when he overtemped the hydraulic system. And he actually, the, the engines wouldn't throttle back. So he actually dropped his gear at Mach 2.3 or 2.4. Of course, it rips the gear doors off, but the mm -hmm. tech order said, you can lower the gear as long as it's not transonic. So when he came, when he punched out, the airplane was already pre-damaged <laughs> from lowering the landing gear at, at uh, Mach 3 point, uh, at Mach 2.4. So he crashed four Skunk Works airplanes. If he had crashed a fifth one, he'd have been, he would have been a Skunk Works ace. <laughs> not, not a title I think he really, really <laughs> wanted. Yeah. Did the A-12 have that fuel leaking problem that the SR-71 did? Yeah, the SR-71, it was, it was worse because they had wet wings. The A-12 had dry wings. But the, the environment that the Blackbird operates in, you go from minus 70 at 85,000 feet. That's minus 70 Fahrenheit. And as you go through the air, you heat up the airframe, and the airframe uh, can get up to 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit. So they initially, the first time they, first time they filled it with fuel, it, I mean, it was, it was, they were putting in a couple, you know, a couple thousand pounds of fuel gallons or whatever, however, however you want to define it. And it, as fast as they were filling it, it was draining out of all the, uh, you know, all the seams and stuff on the, uh, on the airplane. So they, they weren't quite sure what to do. So they went to East LA, they hired a group of locals who one didn't speak English because they didn't have to. And their job was to go into the fuel cell in the fuel tanks. And they figured, they figured that a neoprene bladder would uh, crack after just a few flights because of the extreme heat, extreme cold. So they used uh, a water soluble glacial clay. Now, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, like I did for uh, 10 years, actually 18 years total, I lived in Whidbey Island, and Whidbey is the remnants of the last two ice ages. And if you're in your garden, you dig down, you, you come up, uh, you'll in invariably come up with this gray, slimy, it's wet, but it's impenetrable, impenetrable by water. And it's just slimy, and it's this glacial clay. And I believe that's that's what they used to seal the seams. So, because everything else is is going to be damaged by the by the uh, JP seven, it eats it actually eats neoprene soles off of your uh, off your boots. Hmm. So if so if you were a crew member, ground crew member at, at Beale or even at Kadena, mm -hmm. uh, you got you, you had two new pair of boots every ninety days because they knew uh, within ninety days the soles would be rotting off of your boots. So, uh, but it's, you know, the, the, air, you know, the, the, the Blackbird is, it's, it's such an incredible airplane and it, it does leak fuel. A lot of, a lot of fighters, uh, have, uh, you know, maybe 10,000 pounds of fuel or less, uh, a Blackbird will almost leak that much during combat operations before it takes off. When, during training missions, they put 40,000 pounds of fuel in the airplane. This is good for either the A-12 or the SR-71, or as a matter of fact, the YF-12 interceptor. And the, uh, you know, the, the, 
it's like someone's on top of the airplane with a garden hose, with the hose turned on fairly high on both wings, and that's the fuel pouring down from from the airplane. And they have a they have a fuel recovery system, both uh, at Beale and at at Kadena. But during combat operations, they put in sixty thousand pounds of fuel. The airplane will hold a hundred thousand pounds of fuel. They don't they don't fill them up completely because they've lost three airplanes to wheel and tire failure on takeoff because they were they were not overweight, but they were on the critical point of what the the tires could support. The the uh, main bogies have uh, three uh, twenty two ply tires on each main landing gear assembly. If you lose one because of, of being overweight or being weight as much as they did, about 140,000 pounds. If you, if one pops, the other two will go instantly. The rims are titanium. And of course the runways are concrete. So here you have a gigantic sparkler on the bottom of the air, you know, you know, underneath the airplane, you blow a tire. Now this thing is throwing up shrapnel up to the bottom, to the wet wing, if it's an SR 71, and now you have fuel pouring down. You know, you have a, a, a real uh, high temperature with the, the molten titanium on the uh, grinding on the uh, concrete runway, and the airplane is in full afterburner. So that really causes some problems. So they, you know, they, uh, they lost three airplanes to wheel and tire failure. The, since you lived in Seattle, I don't know if you went to the Museum of Flight. Oh, yeah. And, and saw the, the mother airplane. That's the only one. That's the M21 with the D21 on top of it. That is the, uh, uh, my mind just went blank. That is, right that, that is the 14th, that's the 14th Blackbird built. Wow. And, uh, and the one that was lost was the 15th. But the, uh, you know, the, air, the airplane is, is a piece of engineering marvel. It was designed using slide rules. And if you're more than, if you're, if you're younger, then 60, you probably have never seen a slide roll. Slide roll is a, a slipstick that engineers used before, before they were computers, before they were you know, calculators. My father had one. He, he was a professor at Stanford, postgraduate engineering, and he worked on other stuff. But uh, he had, he called this a supercomputer, and it was about a 32-inch long slide roll. Mm -hmm. and, and he said he was born with it. I mean, so he, I mean, that was part of him and he could, he could whip that thing out and go zip, 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 zip and come up with an answer, you know, several points past the decimal point. And, you know, he was, he had a triple major when he was at Caltech, electrical engineering, physics, and mathematics. So he was, uh, that's the environment I had to grow up in. But the, uh, you know, the airplane was designed using slide rules. And the thing that's really uh, probably as amazing about this as anything, from signing a contract to first flight was 32 months. Wow. Now today, in today's world, the Air Force can't change the paint scheme on a C-130 in 32 months. And I saw the Ironbird for the F-35, actually the X-35, in August of 1990. And it's still not fully mission capable. It does not have the block four. I think it's four F is the is the fully operational configuration, and they're still working on the software. So, so they did incredible things, and and 
you had to take in consideration the environment this airplane was operating in. It, you know, it uh, lived in the desert, high desert, Area 51. Uh, it's about 100 miles north of Las Vegas. And uh, it also operated out of Diego Garcia for a while and Kadena, Okinawa and Mildenhall, uh, Royal Air Force Base in the UK. But the airplane, when you heat something up from ambient temperature, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and you move it up to you know, 800 to 1,000 degrees, things grow. And I've heard people say, oh, the airplane grows a foot, it grows this. I sat down with the uh, chief metallurgist for the, you know, for the skunk works. His name was uh, Tori Larson. And I sat down with him one day and I said, all right, Tori. He said, I got a question. You know, everything on the Blackbird has been declassified, so there isn't anything to, to you, can't, you can't ham and haw about. I said, the, um, how much does the Blackbird grow? So he pulled out his, uh, he called his metals Bible. It gives the coefficient of expansion for all known uh, types of, of metals. Mm -hmm. So he pulled it out, and I think it's, I forget what the exact number is, but it's like B210 something something titanium. So he puts in his calculation based on standard day, and uh, after 22 minutes at Mach 3.2, the airplane's fully soaked. And the average overall temperature is like 550 degrees. Now your broiler in your oven is about 475. So it's another 75 degrees hotter than your broiler. And that's the overall average temperature. The leading edge of the rudders, the, the inlet lip on, uh, from the engines, that can get up to about 1,100 degrees. The exhaust ejector, can, oh shit, I get it. Excuse me, I got to turn That's this cool. off. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, so, so Tori pulls out his, his medals Bible, and he's going through all these calculations, and he, and he stopped, and he said, okay, so first of all, the airplane grows in all dimensions when it's heated up, but its, it's length is, a, you know, the SR-71 is 107 feet long. The A-12 was 105 feet. Uh, it didn't have a replaceable nose. It didn't have an extended tail cone. But the average length that the uh, SR-71 grows after 22 minutes at Mach 3.2 is 1.92 inches. That's all. But it also, yeah, it also wow. grows in... in oh, Pardon? I think you just froze on me for a second. And the... Uh, but the thing... The, the part of the airplane that is really fascinating that grows a lot is the Pratt and Whitney J fifty eight? Pardon? Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. I'm what happens is, is if there's a lot of everybody in my neighborhood's on Xfinity, so if it's a hot news day like that shooting in New York, everybody yeah. and their brother are on right now. So, you know, or you I, you freeze up. Yeah, yeah. Up. yeah. So the, the the most fascinating uh, part of the Blackbird that grows is the Pratt and Whitney J fifty eight. Now, that is a, an engine that was developed for the Navy back in 1954-55 time frame. Mm -hmm. when, when Kelly Johnson was looking at propulsion for the what turned out to be the A-12 ox cart, he liked all the numbers that the Pratt & Whitney J-75 had to offer. And he said, we need, but we need something, you know, 
more robust, more power at uh, high altitude. And they had a they had an engine. You know, it's called the, the J fifty eight P two and P four, and both those were strictly for the Navy, and it was for a generic fleet defense interceptor. One of the, one of the considerations was they were going to use the RA five vigilante. They were going to take out, uh, and that's that's a real pretty carrier based aircraft and a big one for a carrier. It's you know it's 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 over eighty thousand pounds. It's a big airplane, but they were going to put a J-58 in that and just have one engine versus the two J-79s. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so they developed the, uh, the, the Pratt & Whitney J-58 uh, around that the Navy core of the P-2 and the P-4 engine. And it's, it is a, it's, it's the power for Mach 3 plus. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible airplane. And the, they didn't. They didn't go Mach uh, Mach three until March of you know, March or April, uh, consistently, uh, almost a year later. Yeah, it, they were working their way up. One of the problems that Jim Eastham, he was one of the test pilots. Uh, he was. Uh, you know, they had they had taken out the YJ engines, which were the original uh, prototype engines, and they 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 stole, if you want to call it that. They borrowed without permission. A, a group of Model K engines, which were which were the SR seventy one engines. Now the SR seventy one wasn't flying yet, but they wanted something with a little bit more horsepower. Mm-hmm. Now the air, you know, the the J fifty eight YJ fifty eight was rated at thirty four thousand pounds of thrust at sea level. At altitude, that thirty four thousand pounds of thrust is only only represents 17% of the total thrust because the inlet and the exhaust ejector turn into a ramjet. So you're you're moving a 130,000 pound airplane through the air at 3,200 to 3,400 feet per second, which is two miles every three seconds, 43 miles a minute. And on its retirement flight, it was 972, which was the best running of all the SRs. Everyone had their own personality. That the uh, the airplane would uh, uh, when they when they, t- when they took off they had they uh, they left L.A. they d- they weren't sure if they got a full fuel load because it's not uncommon for the fuel sensors to malfunction. Mm-hmm. So they you know they hooked up with the tanker they put in X number of pounds of fuel and they started their run and right about. Uh, uh, right around St. Louis, the gauges came up and they realized that, hey, we have enough fuel to make it all the way. Because that, that's that was what was really critical. So uh, they firewalled it and it, you went from St. Louis to Cincinnati. I don't know if anybody's ever, you know, any, been, any of your uh, audience have driven that route on Interstate 70, but they did it in eight minutes. <laughs> And Ben Rich, who I, I was blessed to have as a friend, uh, Ben uh, Ben and I ca- talked once a quarter for 25 years. He'd just call me up, or I'd call him up. But he told me that if it was if if they'd have known that they had a full fuel load, they could have on its retirement flight flown from Los Angeles to Washington D.C. in about 47 minutes. Now, when when they're you know when they were going to Kadena, Okinawa, 
Now it's a long way away. I mean, that's, you know, that's almost to Japan, you know, five hours, 25 minutes. That's all it took. And the airplane is more fuel efficient at Mach 3 than it is subsonic. Ken Collins, who is one of the few, uh, I think he's the only one left that has flown both the A-12 and the SR-71. And I think he just turned 92. Sweetheart of, of a guy. And most of them are. There's one or two that I have no use for, but that's that's my personal opinion. But Ken Collins is is a, just a patriot, a hell of a you know, a hell of a pilot, and uh, has the distinction of being the, the only this only surviving uh, pilot to fly both the A12 and the SR71 operationally. But he had he was he was flying an SR. Uh, he had left Beale. He had hooked up with the tanker. He's going at Mach 3.2. And he loses his stabilization augmentation system, which you cannot you cannot fly that airplane by hand at Mach three. Uh, the you know the stabilization augmentation system does it for you. So he had to go subsonic, and he used twice as much fuel heading back to Beale than he did going to the point where he had to turn around, and he had a tailwind. So the airplane, the S, you know, the SR seventy one loves to fly fast, right? And un, un, unlike most, and like every other military aircraft, where the the posted speed or the you know the suggested speed is sixty eight to seventy two percent of what they you know the, the top their top speed, with the Blackbird, when you're flying a Mach three point two four, you're about ninety seven to ninety eight percent to the end of the operational envelope. Hmm. Uh, anything, anything faster than uh, 3.43 uh, and you'll blow out the inlets. You'll have a dual unstart. As a matter of fact, um, Bill Weaver, who had uh, an SR-71 disintegrate around him uh, when it had an unstart at speed and altitude, they were flying 974, which was the best flying of all. The airplanes, and that's the one that you'll see on on models uh, with the, uh, the the snake and the one. They called it Ichiban Number One, and that is a uh, uh, the Ichiban is what the uh, regulars in in Okinawa called the, the Blackbird, and they and they nicknamed it Habu because it it's it's big, it's nasty, it's you know it goes places that no one else knows where it's going. And on the island of Okinawa, there's a black uh, snake. It's in the cobra family that they call Habu. So they just started calling the, uh, the, the A-12 originally, then the SR-71, got the nickname Habu, and it's stuck. It's, you know, it's, it's been that way forever. But it, it's the, you know, the airplane, everything about it is special. I've, I've helped dismantle three airplane, three Blackbirds, an A-12, an SR-71A, and an SR-71C, the one that went to, uh, where did the C go? I went to Hill, uh, the Hill Air Force uh, Base Museum. And it's, it is, it is a beautifully built machine. I, uh, you know, I, I was, I was an art, artist when I was younger, but I did some sculpture work and I, and so I'm taking things apart and I'm looking at some of the, this machine titanium and it's absolutely beautiful, just gorgeous. But the airplane, uh, you know, you, it could not be built today. 
because you have too many nosy congressmen and senators. You have too many, you know, you know too many, you know, people within the uh, bureaucratic nightmare that's called the Pentagon uh, who are always looking for their favorite projects and, and the secrecy. They wouldn't keep, it would be hard to keep the secrecy today. You have just, you, you have, you have a generation of kids that, don't believe in roles that they don't, that doesn't pertain to me. Mm-hmm. So they would have, they would have a hard time uh, building that airplane today. And, and the thing that's ironic about it, they built 50 man blackbirds from the first A-12, which was uh, number 121 to the last SR-71A. Actually it was the C model was the last one built, but that was parts of two airplanes. Um, they built 50 blackbirds and the, and the, uh, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it today. It's just, you know, the air, the airplane, it took a special breed of people to get it there. Now, if the world, if, if the world was filled with Elon Musk's type, then yes, they could build another one. And it's a shame. And the only reason the program was canceled when it was canceled is then Chief of Staff Larry Welsh. Uh, he was turned down to fly the airplane when he was a major. They said, "You're not a good enough pilot. We don't want you." Well, he, he being a politician as well as being a, ended up being a general officer, he ended up being the the assistant uh, chief of staff for you know, for Jerry O'Malley, who was chairman of the joint, who was Air Force Chief of Staff. And Welsh was his uh, exec. Well, uh, Jerry O'Malley was the first blue suitor to fly the SR-71 in combat. It was March 1968. And he, had, he ended up getting killed in a plane crash. And Welsh took his place and became uh, chief, Air Force Chief of Staff. And the first thing he did was... Uh, send a letter, which I had a chance to read, but they wouldn't let me copy it. It was to all staff, senior staff, senior NCOs in the Strategic Air Command, SAC. Anybody caught saying anything positive about the Blackbird program, well, it it will have a negative effect on your uh, future United States Air Force. If you want to slam the airplane, be my guest. But he was an ass. You know, he he took his his petty... uh, you know, his his feelings were hurt because he wasn't a good pilot, and he you know, he turned it you know, turned it into a uh, a vendetta against the Blackbird, and the program was canceled. Mm-hmm. Now during the the leading up to Desert Shield, they uh, Secretary of Defense, I'm trying to remember who if that if that was Weinberger, regardless the um, they con- the Air Force contacted, no, Secretary of Defense contacted the Skunk Works. Now, the, the Blackbird, the last Blackbird flew March, April of 90. Desert Storm started, you know, uh, August 4th, 1990. And the, uh, so the airplanes, it still had a full inventory of airplanes. They still had a full inventory of parts and engines. And uh, the simulator was at NASA. So they, because they were flying, they were flying, they had uh, two airplanes, they had 967 and 971. And the uh, uh, 
they had, you know, they, they, they knew they, they could get enough crew. If the, if the word went out, they could get as many people as they wanted to. I mean, because they were all, a lot of them were still living around the Yuba City, Marysville area. So as far as maintenance guys, a lot of those guys went from the SR to the U2. So they were still at Beale. And the, uh, so they contacted Ben Rich and said, we, I need an answer from Lockheed. How long would it take to get one airplane fully mission capable with uh, at least three flight crew maintenance people? It'll operate out of, out of Beale. Uh, we have all the parts still you know, that are still there. How long will it take? Ben came back and said, I will need a blank check. I will not, I, I'm not going to have to justify everything that I need. I want to be able to go to wherever the sensors are and say, I need that, that, that. And without any red tape or any uh, problems, you know, acquire that, you know, the, the, those sensors. And, and it came back and he said, if, if I get the green light today, you'll have an operational airplane ready in 30 days. Huh. And so I said, okay, hold that thought. So it, uh, came back oh, about you know a week later and said, what would it take for two airplanes? And he said, I already said, I already figured that out because I knew you were going to ask for more than one. Said it will be it will be 30 days as well. And I need a blank check. And I don't and I don't I don't have to sit down and, and argue with people to justify whatever I'm getting for the airplane. You'll get your money's worth. And they always have. So he said, well, hold, hold that thought. And about 10 days later, someone, it wasn't Secretary of Defense, but someone got back to Ben and said, because the program was ultimately canceled at the request of the Air Force Chief of Staff, which was Larry Welsh, to reinstate the program today would make him look bad. This ass is the reason why the program was canceled, and because you didn't want that jackass to—I don't know if I can say that—you uh, didn't want that that jerk to uh, uh, be upset because you know, because you're reinstating it. That is the reason why it wasn't re that wasn't used during Desert Storm. They needed it during Desert Storm. U twos were vulnerable. They were, you know, we didn't have the the high altitude drones that we have today. So they, you know, they weren't going to fly uh, U-2 operations, you know, over contested areas. They can, can get up high enough, you can look farther in, and you're out of SAM surface air missile uh, threat. But it's it's just it, it, everything everything about that airplane. There isn't anything in that airplane that you can go to your local Ace Hardware store and buy something for it, or mm -hmm. to your local. Uh, FBO at the local airport, or even you know, go to any Air Force base. There's there's almost nothing that you can get, you can find on the shelves that would be fully compatible with the, the Blackbird. I mean, one of the one of the funny things, Jim Eastham, uh, and I, I, like I, said, I had an, I had the honor to interview almost everyone who's crashed an airplane. I've interviewed almost every, um, almost all the original CIA uh, test pilots, all the Lockheed test pilots back in the day, and a lot of operational uh, pilots, both with the A-12 and the SR-71. 
it's it's just it's just an absolutely incredible airplane. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of funnies associated with it. But but uh, Jim Eastham had he was having problem. They were having problems with the inlet scheduling, and he get up to about two point six, two point seven Mach, push the throttles all the way forward, and it just sits there. Matter of fact, it would even slow down a little bit, and they back off and try some different settings and try it again. And finally, they went in and they'd say, "Okay, we're at the at the." You can't see it very well, but at the direct, if you go on, uh, you can see a seam uh, where it sort of dips in right behind my ear right now. Uh, those are free-floating tertiary doors, so they they pinned them closed to see if that would help. And they did. They put some duct tape over you know some of the uh, bypass. Well, <laughs> hey, <laughs> if it works, it works. If it doesn't, hey, too bad. The world's fastest airplane's got duct tape. Oh, oh yeah, that's and that's was Mach three, Mach three duct tape. So, <laughs> um, so Jim's up flying and he's up to about two point, two point six, two point seven, and he said he's cruising there and and there and nothing's happening. All of a sudden, the airplane just sort of vibrates and boom, oh, he's up to two point nine, boom, boom, two point nine two, two point nine five, boom, he hit Mach three. So he, there's a duration clock in the, uh, the, the the upper quadrant of the instrument panel. It's, a, it's like a stopwatch. And he hits that because it said, go Mach 3 for 10 minutes and then go, go into your descent profile. So uh, he goes up to Mach 3.0, and all of a sudden it was, it was almost like a machine gun going off, and the airplane all of a sudden started accelerating. He got up to Mach 3.33. And he's excited. And at, at uh, 10 minutes, he started his descent profile. Now, one of the critical things about flying the airplane, once the airplane's heated up, everything is everything's expanded, including the engine. The most critical part of bringing that airplane back down is the descent profile. You have to cool the outer casing of the engine at the same rate you're, you're cooling the inner working. So it's a real, real specific profile. And they, you know, they lost an airplane, lost an A-12. Jack Weeks was over the far Western Pacific coming down from 75,000 feet. And they uh, had a catastrophic engine explosion uh, because he was descending too fast. And he had two mismatch engines from what I've read. One had fixed inlet guide vanes and one had adjustable and he didn't, and and how you how you tune the inlet varies between those two type engines. And he didn't see the write up on the on the seven thirty one forms, which is more or less is is the diary for the airplane. They st and it stays with the airplane. So the air, you know, airplane disintegrated on them uh, over the far western Pacific, and they never found any remnants of it. They searched for it for six weeks, and there was not not even a rail slick. But it's a when you're, when you're moving through the air faster than a speeding bullet and you're more powerful than a locomotive, I mean, and all of a sudden when you have a, oh, shit, what was that? Boom. I mean, it, it happens instantly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the airplane came down. Now, they built 50-man Blackbirds. They crashed 20. Uh, there was only four fatalities. 
But one of, one of the more interesting events, and it would sort of go into uh, things that go bump in the night type thing. In, in, uh, it was either late 1972 or early 1973. Lieutenant Colonel, I think it was a major at the time, uh, Major uh, Dave Fruhoff was flying a night training mission out of Okinawa. He was in the far western Pacific. He was at uh, 72,000 feet, a Mach 2.7. or maybe 78,000 feet, a Mach 2.7. Three-quarter moon off, his, off to his left. And he's going straight. He's going through his checklist. They're making sure everything is working right. And all of a sudden, he gets a glint of something about five or six miles off to his right and maybe five or 6,000 feet above him. It's metallic, it's reflective, and he's getting a glint of something from the moon, from the three-quarter moon. Anybody who's been out in the desert, even, even a three-quarter moon, you can read a book. It's, yeah, you get sad, right? And at, at almost 80,000 feet, you don't have any atmosphere to, to degrade the, uh, you know, to absorb the light. So you get, you get the full effect. Mm-hmm. He contacts Kadena on Secure Voice, Wants to know if another bird's up. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. He said, no, I'm not. So he moved the throttles forward because you're he he isn't at that particular time at 2.7 at 78,000 feet. He's admit absolute minimum burner. He could almost go out of burner and still maintain, still be supersonic, not necessarily Mach 3, but he'd still be supersonic. So he advances the throttles. He does about a 10 degree bank as, as he's, you know, as he's heading up towards his object. He can't make out the shape because he, he's, there's, there's glare inside the cockpit. You know, he has a reflective visor on his David Clark suit. He doesn't want to open the visor in case he, something happened and he had to bail out. Uh, he would be dead instantly. That is his capsule. Uh, the, uh, so he had, uh, he's, he's inching closer to it. He's climbing and he's, he's, you know, heading towards it. His backseater gets on the intercom and says, hey, Dave, we have company. He said, yeah, no, I'm going to go take a closer look. And he said when he was still a couple thousand feet below it and still a mile or so away from it, and again, he couldn't make out the shape. It wasn't, but it had edges and it was metallic. This thing took off at about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him in the dust. He figured it. He figured he lost sight of it between 180 and 200,000 feet. He figured he had, he estimates that the uh, speed that it left him. Now he's going Mach three. This guy's going Mach twelve. Wow. This is 19, late seventy two, early seventy three. So back in the day, you didn't go to you you didn't go to your commander on you know on a on a post you know post uh, mission brief debrief and say, Hey, I chased a UFO because that was, a, that was a for sure without question that, that would kill your career right then and there. Not so much today, but back then. Yes. I mean, I asked, I asked my boss, uh, major general Wayne Gatlin. He was, uh, when he was a major, he was on alert at Duluth air force base. He had F 94 C's again, a skunk works airplane. Mm-hmm. And the Finley Air Force Station, uh, you know, hit the you know hit the uh, scramble alert for the uh, they had three F ninety four Cs on on alert, 
and they launched because they uh, they had tracked a fast-moving unknown over Lake Superior. Now, normally you don't fly across Lake Superior if if you're a military aircraft or a private aircraft. You go around Lake Superior because Lake Superior makes its own weather. Uh-huh. It can be bright and clear. You get in the middle of that lake, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a, a bl- not a blizzard or a rain squall. And if you had to leave the airplane and you hit that water, even in August, in a in a they don't have tides because it's a, it's a lake. But I I I can remember the first time I went up to Lake Superior. It was 94 degrees. It was hot. I didn't have air conditioning. I stopped along the road right right next to the the uh, lake. I, you know, I rolled up my pant legs, took my shoes and socks off, stepped in the lake, and I thought I was going to die. I think the water was like 41 degrees. This is end of summer. This has been baked with a lot of sunshine, and it was still in the 40s. So you didn't want to bail out there. But as he's coming up on it, Finley says, it's heading right towards us. And General Gatlin said, well, you know, we can see something uh, ahead of us. You know, the, uh, and he went into full afterburner, which you can only do for about a minute. Uh, unlike the SR-71 that flies an afterburner, and it's the only fully, uh, it's the only airplane ever to uh, fly with full-time afterburners. But he's, you know, he's uh, heading towards this object, and his uh, Wizzo, his weapons control, you know, his weapons uh, officer, said every time I, he would lock on, the radar would die. So they pull the circuit breaker, reset everything, turn it back on. It's scanning, it's scanning. It locks on. As soon as it locks on, it dies. And now they're, you know, they're they're getting closer to shore, and it's heading right towards Finley. And Finley said it's moving fast, and it's coming right towards us. Well, it didn't go by us. It hasn't moved. Where in the heck is it at? And General Gatlin got on the horn. He said, well, if you go outside, it's right above your geodesic dome because the, the radar had, had uh, in a big uh, golf ball type thing. Mm-hmm. And they went out. And as soon as they went out the door, this thing went straight up. And Minnesota weather uh, during the summer, the you know, the air is crystal clear. There's no pollution up there. And you could, you know, if you were down in a if you were down in a in a well and you looked up, you could see stars. That's how clear it is. And he said this thing went straight up and and disappeared. So I asked I asked and I was I was on state staff at the time and I asked General Gatlin. I said, okay, let's assume and this is this is 1984 85 time frame. I said, General Gatlin, what uh, if I would let's assume I'm a I'm a F-16 pilot. And I retired as a master sergeant. I wasn't a pilot at all so in the service. But they said, let's assume I'm an F-16 pilot and I encounter a UFO, a flying saucer, a UAP, whatever you want to call it. What do I do? So when you come back, this is General, this is General Gatlin talking. You come back, you do your post-flight, you know, check everything in. You go to the O Club. You get yourself two or three stiff drinks. You down them. You go back to your billet and you forget everything you saw that day. Because if you if you even hint to the fact that, oh, I chased a UFO, <laughs> there's a big uh crazy emblem or you know, you know, the sticker you find on poison poisons that, that waiting uh, for you. Well, yeah. that's, that's gonna go on your 201 file. So anybody, oh god, this guy, this guy is uh uh you know, he's toxic. He's, you know, he's, he's someone you don't want to be around. 
So the uh, it's it, I mean every everything about the Blackbird. There's so much fun associated with it. Mel Vavadich was an A12 pilot, and I don't think Mel yeah Mel flew SR71s as well, but he passed away a couple of years ago. He was uh, uh, I think it was a 928. They had just rewired all of uh, the airplanes. And they made a mistake when they rewired his, and he's taken. And he was he was very very safety conscious. Uh, he was probably the the safest pilot, you know, flying flying the Blackbirds because he was he was religious about safety. So he's going. He's at the he's you know, at the uh, end of the runway. Engines running. He's checking everything out. He's going through all his procedures, but he's also going for. Look, you know, going through and making sure that if if he has to leave the airplane, is everything where it should be? And it was. So he takes off, and as soon as as soon as he lifts off the ground, things go wrong. Uh, the airplane, the airplane on the ground. If you move the stick one way, the rudders turn one way, or the elevons move up and down a certain way. I mean, they all it, it, everything worked normally. But when the oleos are fully extended, the the sass flies the airplane. It's it, it is sort of a rudimentary fly-by-wire. So Mel lifted off, and when you when you had pitch, you had yaw. And when you had yaw, you had oops. I just I just crashed. That's what happens yeah. when you don't get your pitch and you all lined up right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm mostly Sicilian, so I talk with my hands. You're so, okay, yeah. <laughs> so he realizes he has to leave this airplane. He's about a, he's about 150 feet off, off the runway. He's this way. Uh-huh. Now, it was December 20. It was December. I can't remember the exact date in December. It's right near Christmas. And when he ejected, they had, there was about four inches of ice on Groom Dry Lake. That had a very, very wet winter and had all this ice. And when he ejected, he went, he went out of the airplane this way, sideways, and at about a half a degree angle. And he came in and his, he was still in his seat, never left his seat. And he's skidding along the dry lake bed on four inches of ice. So it was like a skating rink. I mean, he's he's moving fast. Well, the airplane's coming up and over, and it almost crashes on top of him. And the he can feel the heat from the fire. He unbuckles himself out of the seat. He can't feel his legs. He can't move his legs. He figure he broke his back. So he's he's on his he's on his elbows and he's trying to get away from the fire. Bill Park, who's in the uh, soft truck, the uh, Supervisor of safety, uh, he's come zipping across the dry lake bed on ice that's melting because of a fire, and he's heading right towards uh, Mel. He he goes, he hits the brakes, and he actually accelerates because he's now he's on melting ice, and he almost ran over Mel Vavadich. So now the ambulance comes out there, the fire trucks are there trying to put the fi- you know fire out. Um, the paramedics, you know, pick up Mel. They drop him three times. He said he got hurt more by the 
paramedics tried to get him into the ambulance. So finally he said, hey, screw this. He got in, he could started wiggling his toes. He realized that he had only shocked his back. And he's on his hands and knees and he's walking his way, he's working his way over towards the uh, ambulance. He gets in, heads back. He, they did a full check of, you know, of, of his health and he was okay. And of course, Kelly Johnson heard that they uh, crashed uh, an A-12. He was on the, you know, he got on his either, I think probably his Jetstar and had Ray Gowdy fly him to the test site. They called it Kelly's Ranch. Uh, later on, they called it Elvis's house. Elvis has left the building, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, Kelly said, I know exactly what the problem is. I want you to cut this area out of the airplane and have it ready for me when I land. And the airplane's still on the, you know, out on the lake, it's, you know, smoldering. So sure as shooting, the outputs for the pitch and the yaw had the same size connector, same type of connector, and they were reversed. So when you had pitch, you had yaw. When you had yaw, you had pitch. And there was no way that uh, Mel could have overcome that because of his natural tendencies. When when you when you've been flying so long and it's and it's second nature to you, you don't even think when you do something. Your body knows what to do. So you're trying to counter, you know, 20 years of being one of the best fighter pilots or pilots in the military that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kelly, you know, Kelly knew what the problem was. Uh, Mel turned out he was okay. So knowing what the problem was, Bill Park, who was, uh, then the chief test pilot for the skunk works, Mel Vavadich, one of the original, uh, Oxcart CIA operational pilots. There was Jack Weeks, Walt Ray, <clears throat> Frank Murray, uh, Ken Collins, Jack Layton, uh, Bill Sklar, and I've interviewed them all. I did not, I did not uh, Jack Weeks because he got killed, and same with uh, Walt Ray, he got killed before I had a chance to, you know, to interview him. But uh, he just, he just knowing what he knew, mm-hmm. he, uh, Mel and, and Bill went off to um, Beale where the simulator was, and they put in the exact same thing that caused his A-12 to crash. And so Vavadich goes first, knowing that you're going to have pitch when you have yaw and you're going to have yaw when you have pitch. He tried to compensate, knowing what was knowing what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. He tried five different times, crashed all five times, and boy, he was pissed. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and, and, there, and these guys are a lot of jokers too, by the way. So he uh, uh, he tells Bill Park and said, "Hey, I got, I'm gonna go have I'm gonna ops. I'm gonna go have a cup of coffee. This stuff just sucks." Said, "I know what the problem was yet. I still crashed." And Bill says, "Well, let me try it." So you know, you know Bill gets on the uh, in the sim. Mel leaves. He comes back about 45 minutes later, and Mel said, "Well, Bill, how'd you do?" And he said, "Hey, I took off and landed three times without a problem." And Bill, this is interview I had with Bill Park. He said Mel's face just, I mean, it just melted in, into almost into into shame because <laughs> he couldn't save the airplane. And all, all of a sudden, I think Park realized that Mel was really bummed out over this, and and Park just let out a belly laugh. Said, "No, I crashed every time too." So, 
I mean, there's there's so many funny things. Oh, to, to get back to Jim Eastham, mm -hmm. when he went Mach 3.33 for the very first time, uh, he's now he's coming he's coming into uh, land at Area 51, Kelly's Ranch, Dreamland, uh, Watertown Strip, all sorts of names, and he's coming in on final. And uh, everything's checking, you know, checking out good. But his cockpit's starting to fill up with smoke. He figured he'd, you know, he'd gone Mach three, he'd gotten really hot in the airplane, and he probably cooked some stuff. So he wasn't concerned about it. So he touches down. He goes and pulls the chute. Now you need the drag chute to stop the airplane because the brakes are inadequate to stop a Blackbird. And he pops the chute. Nothing happens. Oh crap! Oh, and on the but to take in consideration that may happen on some instances, they put a black stripe, in a mile a mile uh, diameter circle, on the dry lake bed. So you just you just follow that that black line. You'll eventually run out of energy, so you'll eventually stop. So as soon as he landed and he pops the chute, nothing happens. His now his his uh, cockpit is filled with smoke. So he pops the canopy. The canopy goes flying off, clears out. He goes and hits the brakes. He had full full pressure. He hits the brakes, and all of a sudden, no hydraulic pressure. So he has no brakes. So, oh, crap, we're in for a long ride. So he's going, I mean, he, I don't think he made a full, full circle around uh, Groom Lake, but it, it was way on the other end. And uh, he finally stops. Uh, he takes his, uh, his helmet off, unstraps himself, looks behind him, and there's smoke coming out of every crack and crevice on the airplane. It turns out that the wire coating that they had used was good for about 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And when he went Mach 3.33, it literally charred or burnt off all of the insulation in the fuselage which is the whole airplane. <laughs> yeah. And and if he'd been in the air another, they figure maybe three to five minutes, he would have had to punch out because he would have lost control of the airplane. So, so they went, so why did they lose hydraulic uh, pressure? Why did the brakes fail on them? Someone had decided they were going to save a few dollars instead of using stainless steel pike plugs or when they're when they're bleeding the you know the brake lines, we'll use aluminum plugs. Well, it gets up six or seven hundred degrees in that wheel well. You know, aluminum you know, aluminum melts at seven what seven hundred and ten or depending on the alloy. So it's 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 just like uh, warm chocolate. And he just they just uh, extruded them out. They just you know pushed them out. Why did well, what, and they said, well why didn't the uh, the uh, 50 or 40 foot ribbon shoot. Why didn't it deploy? Mm -hmm. And when they opened, when they opened the thing up, the, the doors have a, a, a small gap and they didn't have an inner, they didn't have an inner piece that would, you would come down there. So you, you didn't have a gap. It gotten so high, it melted the, the Nomex pilot shoot. It was like someone got a welder and just melt right the bead. So when he popped the door, this thing was this thing was was literally welded in place, melted Nomex, but it was well it it wouldn't work. So they they made a modification, put an inner lip on the doors, 
and that solved that problem. So he was, there was a lot of teething when it came to, uh, you know, those kind of things. Okay. Now, it, they had, of the 20 losses, the 20 crashes, uh -huh. they, only had, they only had four fatalities. If, if it wasn't for a broken arm, they would only had three. Mm -hmm. On the fourth launch of a D-21 off a mother airplane, like the one that's the Museum of Flight in Seattle, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, 940. 941 was the one that did all the, all the testing, uh, launching the, the D-21. When they went up, uh, they, uh, they were, you know, they had had three successful launches of the D-21 off, off the, the mother airplane. Now, when the D-21 left the airplane, it missed, it only had about two feet on either side of the, of the uh, tails to clear as it went up through the bow wake. And there's, you know, there are some, uh, there's film of the first three launches and you can see as the, as the drone is leaving the mother airplane, you'll see a puff of smoke come out of the back of the D-21. That's as it goes through the bow wake and it causes the, uh, it causes a brief unstart. And I think what happened on, uh, and, and he's in a 0.9 G arc on the first three launches. So Kelly was a, Kelly was a yes or no guy. He didn't like a lot of words on it, you know, on it. When he had a question, he could say yes or no. Uh, he didn't want anybody, he didn't want you to go any dissertation on what would cause it. Mm -hmm. So they had they had uh, three successful launches. The drones you know, weren't necessarily successful, but the launch and the separation worked worked as planned. So Kelly brings in Bill Park, and he said, "Bill, he said, I got a question. In your opinion, can a line pilot uh, fly maintain a 0.9 g arc in a combat environment?" And Park, Park goes, starts going through his long, you know, hemming and on this and that. And Kelly said, stop. I want a yes or a no. <laughs> so Park's going there. He's doing this, figuring this, doing this, doing that. Finally, after about two minutes, this, this is from Park to me, you know, when I interviewed him. He said, he looked at Kelly and said, no. <laughs> that, was, that was his answer to this complex question. He said, okay, on the fourth launch, I want you to be at one G. I don't want you. I don't want you to. I want you to go straight and level. And I want to see what's going to. You know, we're, we'll launch straight and level on fourth on the uh, fourth uh, attempted launch. And this was on uh, July thirtieth, nineteen sixty-six. They were about two hundred miles off the coast of California, off of, uh, Point Magoo. They're at seventy-eight, seventy-nine thousand feet about 3.1 and it was the first time that the uh other m21 mother airplane was flying and it he flew uh it was about a mile away but it was on its uh, off the starboard side and keith beswick was in the back seat with a 16 millimeter uh camera uh, you know shooting you know shooting it and the the drone goes up, it goes through the bow wake, and then it comes by and it crashes back into the airplane. And where the where the wings comes down and where they go like this, it's that's the splice, the 715 splice as they call it. And it, that's where it hit. 
and Park didn't realize he he was involved in a mid-air collision. He thought because because there was a shift in the aft center of gravity, the airplane was pitching up. So he gave us some forward stick. But then he said things started going by him this way, and that was not a good sign. <laughs> and he, he told me, he said, I, I always stayed with the airplane until it was safer to be outside the airplane. So they rode the forward fuselage down. Now it's it's tumbling and it's twirling. He said he was going through five or six uh, you know, revolutions, I, don't know, I think a minute, both five to six Gs positive to five to six Gs negative as the thing is tumbling and twirling. So finally at about 68,000 feet, because the altimeter is still working, uh, he said at 68,000 feet, he felt it was now time to leave the airplane. And on the morning brief, they were told that there was a, uh, the ceiling was at 5,000 uh, uh, in broken, broken clouds. And so he had 5,000 feet till he hit the water. That was at 6 a.m. This is now uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, he initiates eject, eject. Uh, the backseater goes out first. He goes out next. You know, he sees, uh, he sees Ray Torx flash from his ejection seat, so he knew he got out of the airplane okay. And uh, he's coming down. And the first thing that happens when you leave the airplane, now uh, Bill Weaver ran into the same thing when his airplane disintegrated. The heater for the faceplate is external to the suit. It's part of the airplane. So as soon as you leave the airplane, it's 70 below zero up there. You're breathing. All of a sudden, the ins inside of your faceplate frosts up. And you can see light and dark, but you can't see anything else. So he's in his seat. And there's an automatic sequence at 15,000 feet. The seat will automatically cut your belts and push you out. And your main chute will deploy. And I asked, I asked all the Blackbird pilots when they told me at 15,000 feet, the, main, you know, the, uh, the, the seat will push you out. I said, why 15,000 feet? And he said, because between Area 51 and the Pacific Ocean, where they're going to be flying out of, is the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And the tallest mountain is Mount Whitney, which is 14,500 and some odd feet. Makes sense. So they had it set at 15,000 feet. So as lucky as some people are, you there was the chance of you having to eject as you're right over the top of Mount Whitney. They wanted to make sure you had at least 500 feet of air for that, for that uh, parachute to open up. And... So he's going down and he, and he can't see anything. And he, he know he, his hands are, are, are now freezing because it's 70 below zero. And he's trying to push his faceplate up and use his nose or whatever it is to see if he can get a little glimpse to where he's at. And he said, it seemed like it took for an hour. Now, what happens when you leave a blackbird at speed and altitude? You eject out with, with rockets. There's only four tenths of a percent of the atmosphere up there. And he gets up there, and the first thing that happens is an 18-inch stabilization chute opens up, and it puts your butt into the airstream. So you're, you know, your butt's in the air, you know, into the airstream, and as soon as you start going down, as soon as you're going vertical, that 18-inch chute is cut, and a six-foot stabilization chute opens up. 
because at 80,000 feet, 85,000 feet or higher, mm -hmm. you, could, you, know, you could go supersonic if you didn't have something to slow you down because there's no atmosphere to slow you down. So uh, it's slowing them down. So it's, it, they have 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes of oxygen. Most time it's only 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. So he's, so he's, he's sitting in a seat. He's, uh, you know, he's going, he, he said to himself, Lockheed promised me that, the, that I would be separated from the seat at 15,000 feet. He said, I said, he said, I must have said that to himself a thousand times. So almost like magic, boom. He's, you know, the, uh, he feels the belts uh, it cut. He's being pushed out of the seat. His main canopy opens. He opens up his visors. Oh, everything is great. I'm out of here. Uh, he knew that, that uh, Ray Torek got out okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's looking down. He can, he can see the, uh, the clouds below him. So well, I got 5,000 feet once I hit those clouds. But I want to I want to inflate my my May West his life you know life uh, vest uh -huh. early because it's water activated. But he wanted he didn't want to wait for the water to activate. He wanted to be floating as soon as he hit the water. So he's trying he's trying to feel the T hand or the or the D ring for, to inflate his uh, May West. And he can't feel it because his hands are frozen. And they had gone from a from a a, D, a T handle to a D ring. A T handle, all you need is two fingers to get in there. But it was underneath his parachute harness. So he's trying to dig, finding it. Finally, he inflates it. But twenty feet below him is his uh, one man raft and his survival gear. And he's coming down. And he said, "Okay, you know, when I when I hit uh, when I hit the clouds." I know uh, I have a little bit of time before I hit the water. Well, the ceiling had gone from 5,000 feet to zero <laughs> from the time they had their briefing at 6 a.m. until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So as soon as, he hit the, as soon as he hit the clouds, he was in the water. And he went, he went down, popped back up, but not very much. He said he had about two inches of freeboard from where the water was to his open visor because he's out of oxygen. So he has to have his visor open and he, and he's trying to get into his one man raft and he's exhausted. His hands are still you know, frozen. He's trying to get in. Said he tried three times and I mean, he was getting totally exhausted and he knew all of a sudden he realized he had water halfway up his calf. The water was coming into his suit which means it was going to, it was going to pull him down. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he said, you could probably hear him scream in point Magoo. Cause he said, he grabbed hold of it. And he said, every ounce of energy he had from the end of his hair follicles to the end of his toenails, he, he screamed and pulled himself in and he was, you know, he made it. And, uh, yeah, he was waiting for, uh, Jack, uh, Ray Torek to you know, to see how he you know, how he turned out. What happened to Ray? He broke his arm on the way out. A couple of the, a couple of the uh, 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 test pilots, Lockheed test pilots, had said the, the camera bracket in the back seat. If you have to eject, if your hand, if your arm is anywhere near that, you're going to break your arm. And that's what happened to, to uh, Ray.
Well, Ray was a former UDT, underwater uh, demolition team, just same as a Navy SEAL. So if anybody's going to have a successful bailout in the ocean, it's going to be it's going to be him. Mm-hmm. Well, with a broken arm, he couldn't he couldn't get into his life raft, and the poor guy drowns. Mm-hmm. So here he survived a midair collision at almost eighty thousand feet at two thousand miles an hour. He rode the forward fuselage down. 15,000 feet before he punched out, 15 to 20,000 feet. He did that successfully, broke his arm. He hit the water, couldn't get into his life raft, and he drowned. So they knew they had a problem with the flotation device. So Melvavidich, being one of the A-12 pilots, said, you know, they're going to have the same potential problem if they have to bail out over the Pacific when Uh they're flying, flying over Russia or China. So they went out uh, to Lake Mead outside of Las Vegas. They went to a uh, a very, very quiet uh, bay there on on Lake Mead. Uh, No boating around. They had had, uh, two Air Force uh, boats there, helicopter. They had divers in the water. It wasn't wasn't an overly deep uh, bay. And all all Mel did, he had he had this you know, the you know, the suit, just like uh, Bill Park and Ray Torek had, and he jumps out of the helicopter into the water. So if it wasn't for the fact that he had a couple uh, Navy divers there to to help him, he said he would have drowned. He said in a in a swimming pool, just calm. He said this much freeboard. So the water water coming in eventually you're gonna you're gonna drown. So that that was one of that was one of the tragedies where Ray Torek maybe should not have uh, lost his life. Oh. Uh, the only one that really was unavoidable was uh, Jack Weeks. He was in an A12, the last flight of an A12 out of uh, Kadena, Okinawa. It was its last <clears throat> training uh, engine check. Uh, check ride. He was just, they put a new engine in and he was going up, make sure it worked okay. And he was coming down through 75,000 uh, feet and they had a catastrophic engine explosion and the airplane disintegrated and they never found any anything about him. The, you know, the other, the other fatality was uh, Walt Ray. He was in an A-12. Uh, the three fatality, three fatalities were in, in the single place airplanes and that includes the M-21 and one fatality in the SRs. And the uh, uh, Walt Ray was kind of a short guy, and they had uh, his head didn't sit right with on the uh, headrest. So they modified the headrest. Well, what it did, it, uh, it altered the function of the ejection seat, and it jammed up on him. So he ran out of gas at, at 2,100 miles an hour at 90,000 feet. He ran out of gas. And, it, and to quote Bob Gilliland, a blackbird has the same aerodynamic characters, characteristics as an unpowered toolbox when there's no power behind it. And he said it was dropping like a rock. And he punched out. It was a, and uh, he rode the seat down 15,000 feet, supposed to go into the, the uh, release sequence, push him out. That jammed up. And it it jammed up so much that he couldn't release the five-point harness, and he rode the seat all the way to the ground. And he was alive when the seat hit the ground, and and he was doing it. He was he was 
probably only doing about 60 miles an hour, but that was on your butt. Yeah. And, yeah, and it just, uh, as soon as he hit the ground, he was dead. Uh, and the other one was uh, Bill Weaver. His airplane disintegrated around him at uh, almost 80,000 feet, just under Mach 3. And he was he was in a bank. He was in a 60-degree bank, and it had an unstart, and the airplane started going like this. And it had a shift in the aft center of gravity, and the airplane just whipped around. He didn't initiate an ejection sequence, but, mm -hmm. but he found himself outside the airplane at 80,000 feet. Okay. And he, at first, he wasn't sure what happened. And what happened, the all-military jets, fighters, attack aircraft, they have an emergency handle. You hit it, you pull about a six or 10-foot lanyard, you yank on it, it blows the canopy, and it cuts the belts. This is the way fire crews go in there. Can, they don't have to worry about unhooking everything. They, just, they pull that handle. The canopy goes, blows off. You grab the pilot, jerk him out, get him away from the fire. Um, and uh, my mind just, oh. So he found himself outside the airplane. His backseater, uh, Jim Fagg, I think was his name, uh, I can't, I, I'm not, I, I think, I think it was Fag that was his backseater, but no, that's not important. His backseater realized the airplane is starting to disintegrate. He pulls the, he pulls the, uh, the ejection seat handles in between his legs, but the air, as the airplane was breaking apart, the canopy was bound and it wasn't going to release and his seat fired and of course, your head's just your head's about this far above uh, the seat. Hit the top of the canopy, broke his neck. He was dead. And then, as the airplane disintegrated, it threw him out. Now, Bill Weaver, everything worked properly. I mean, but he did the same thing. He felt himself. He was going around, and around, and around. So he put his arms out to to stabilize himself. His faceplate is frosted up. He can't see what's happening. He's falling from you know from. 80,000 feet. I mean, he's really picking up some speed. Uh, so he's trying to, he's trying to slow things down a little bit, putting his arms, his legs out, trying to stabilize. He doesn't know how high he is because he can't see. All he knows is that he was going around and around and around. And he kept selling, telling himself, Kelly promised me the main chute would open up at 15,000 feet. He said, just like Bill Park, he's, he said it about a thousand times. Uh -huh. And sure as shoot at 15,000 feet, boom, the main canopy opens up. It's quite a jerk. So he lifts up, he opens his visor because he's now out of oxygen. And he's trying to see where, oh, Jim Zare was the backseater. Uh, Fag was a 978 with, with uh, Denny Bush when it crashed. And he's okay. So he, he sees, you know, he sees a parachute a mile or so away. So he figured, well, uh, Jim Zwer got out okay. And when he lands, he lands right on the edge of a uh, mesa. It's 800 feet straight down, and his feet are right at the edge, but the wind is blowing into his face, so it's pushing him back a little bit. So he, un he unhooks his uh, uh, parachute, and he hears a helicopter, like the one in you know, MASH. It's an old hiller, bubble, open, you know, open uh, tail boom. And a 
This guy lands not that far from him. He comes coming over. He said, hey, I saw, I heard the explosion. I saw debris. I saw two parachutes. He said, your buddy's about a mile away. Hop in. Let's go get him. So they, they flew over to, uh, to where Jim was, and you know, he, was, he was deceased. If, mm. it, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for the fact that he tried to initiate an ejection while the airplane was disintegrating until waiting until it was finished disintegrating, he would, he would have survived. And the, uh, you know, the other, you know, the other fatality was, uh, okay. We got, we got Walt Ray. We got, uh, Jack Weeks. Jack Weeks had a engine change on an A-12 on a check flight at the very last flight, getting ready to head home. He had a catastrophic engine failure and the, and the airplane disintegrated. So they had, you know, the, the rest of them were uh, uh, guys got out. It's it's amazing when you when you think about going through the air faster than a speeding bullet. You're more powerful than a speedy locomotive, and you're able to to leap tall buildings in a single bound. That that is the Blackbird. That's the Blackbird. And, and you know, I'm 77 years old, and mm -hmm. I saw my first Blackbird on March 10th, 1964 on the ramp at Edwards Air Force Base. And it's affected me. It's affected the rest of my life. Absolutely. Now, what about Area 51? You worked there briefly, correct? Or, or, or you worked out of Area 51, right? Or no? No, I, I, I had been, I had officially been to Area 51 in 1964 mm -hmm. once. Once. I was assigned, I, w I was a permanent party at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado probably one of the most wonderful stateside bases that you could be assigned to if you're not in the ocean. And I had a set of orders to go TDY to Edwards Air Force Base to help support three programs for category one testing, initial flight testing. And this was the heyday of Edwards Air Force Base. I mean, everything was, everything you could think of was flying at that time. The, all the early, the pre-century series, all the century series, B-58s, uh, the XB-70 hadn't flown yet. And so I was there to support ground-based telemetry systems for the, for the Lockheed YC-141 Starlifter, wow. for the North American Aviation XB-70 Valkyrie, and for a classified program, which was the Blackbird. Hmm. And on March 10th, 19th, actually, they came in on the morning from Area 51. They'd announced the existence of a, of a Mach 3 airplane on February 24th or 26th. And then on February 29th, it was a leap year. It came in on a Saturday and... Uh, about seven o'clock in the morning, they came straight in. There was not, no fancy flying. They came straight in from Area 51. They may have been flying operational test missions, but these are two YF-12 interceptors, same top speed as the SR-71 or the YF-12 or the A-12. Uh -huh. They all flew. They all flew at Mach 3.2. So when they landed, they came straight in. They pulled up and they they. Pulled in so the rear of the airplane was ready to be backed into the Lockheed hangar and the engines were still running. Well, the engines were putting out so much heat, it set off the deluge system in the hangar and almost drowned a couple of Lockheed guys in there. And of course, it set off the fire alarms. And our 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 billeting was eight miles from the flight line. And I had a I had a, I had a vehicle 
but I got, I got my uniform real fast. I had my, I had my line badge. I was good for everywhere on the, on, on Edwards main base, North, not North base, but South base and the rocket stand over. We call it Mount ugly on the other side of Rogers dry Lake. And, uh, so I, 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 I didn't see it that day, you know, that day, that Saturday, because I had worked so much overtime, I was given a couple of days, you know, three days off. And I was, uh, uh, I'd heard the airplane, but I hadn't seen it. So on March 10th, I'm at the uh, Northrop hangar and I'm waiting for, they had a Piaggio. I think it was, uh, it was a go wing pusher prop uh, executive transport type. I think it, I think 10 passengers, maybe, maybe 12 plus the pilot and co-pilot. And I, we're just waiting. And across across the taxiway was the Northrop X twenty one laminar flow air, air, aircraft. There was a X, there was a B sixty six that they put a laminar flow wing on it and jet pods like the DC nine. That was across there. And also, I mean, you you call you name the weird airplane. I saw it fly or or saw it crash <laughs> one of the two. So uh, I hear this roar, and I went running down the flight line. The taxiway and I looked towards the XB70 test pad and there I thought was the X15 fire coming out of the back of it, but the people were too small. So all of a sudden they say, hey, we're loading the airplane. So I ran back up. We got in, we taxied down and took off over Rogers Dry Lake. And we came came over and we banked over it where I'm looking straight down on this incredible black monster, the Blackbird. They'd already shut it down. And they were towing a C-130 in front of it so you can get a relative size. I knew how big a C-130 was. And I'm looking at this thing, and I can't believe my eyes. So I was gone all that week. That next Monday, I come into the section. I get my work, work orders. It is for the Lockheed hangar. So I go over there. I go through security, going to, to the back of the hangar. And I go into the hangar area. And here I'm an 18-year-old kid who joined the Air Force because I love airplanes. I mean, I'm nuts about airplanes. And here I'm looking at Buck Rogers airplanes, two of them. I'm standing at the back of two YF-12A interceptors. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Uh, about a week or two weeks later, uh, I had a set of orders to go TDY from my TDY location to an unnamed location they would fly me to. I was to install some equipment with two other guys, spend the day there and come back. I didn't know where it was at the time, but it, I, I flew into Area 51 in a Fairchild F-27. They had the windows were blocked. You couldn't, you couldn't, they didn't, they were, they may even been painted over. I'm not sure, I can't remember. It's only been almost 60 years. So you know, they, we pulled up next to a hangar. We were told not to look around. We're still in the desert. Uh, and I'm familiar enough with Area 51 now to know that I was at Area 51. Mm -hmm. Went into the hangar, uh, was there for about five hours, installing the equipment, testing it. And they had uh, counter counterparts in the communication group that were assigned to Area 51. Uh, they were... You know, they were actually setting up the equipment. We were just verifying that everything was coming back and working, that the instrumentation was working correctly. And then we went back, got back in the F-27, 90 minutes, and we we're back at Edwards. 
So I snuck in there back in the early 90s. I was in about three miles from the north end, and it was 30 degrees, and I probably sweated a gallon of sweat because I was just so, you know, so uh, on edge, I guess the best way to put it. So, uh, but Area 51 is, is an incredible place. I was one of the first people to go up to top to White Sides Mountain and photograph it. First time I went up was I was with John Lear and my dear friend, John Lear just passed away in his sleep. Uh, I think official date of his death is March 29th, 2022. And he was 79. He would have been 80 in in, uh, early December. I'd I'd known John Lear since about 1974. And he is the craziest SOB I've ever run into in my life. You yeah and, and you talk about you talk about a uh, a right a guy with the right stuff. I mean, he flew he flew for Continental Air Service for fourteen years, and Continental Air Service was a subsidiary of Air America. Okay. And what they they gave him two uh, personal things when he was flying. He had a twenty four karat gold Rolex watch and a twenty four karat gold ID bracelet. Each one weighed 1.1 pounds. So he had a he had a kilo of 24 karat gold, not 18 karat, and it's stuff is soft. But he had ID bracelet, you know, Lear, and then his Rolex. Wow. And over the years, he had to quit. He had to quit wearing the ID bracelet because it was given him arthritis because it was so heavy. And same with his watch. And his daughter Allie has those now. Uh, and it's he, he was he was to the uh, you know the UFO community in the in uh, he was he was he was like a real pathfinder he, he was a little bit on the crazy side at times and and he had a sense of humor <coughs> that you could think that he was so pissed off at you he wanted to he wanted to murder you I mean foaming at the mouth shaking he's so mad his eyes are this big. And then you'd see this twinkle in his eye. You realize, oh, that SOB, he's pulling my leg. <laughs> and then I said, clear you, SOB. And then he started laughing. Ah, I got you. I got you again. And I'm going to miss that. And John Lear was a one, you know, one of a kind. There isn't anybody like him. He was type rated in over 50 aircraft types. He, uh, upon his death on March 29th, 2022, he still was the holder of 16 FAI world records. On his 16th birthday, he flew around the world. He had an FAI observer with him, but it it was a solo flight. He flew around the world on his 16th birthday in his dad's Learjet. But uh, he also had a problem... uh, he lived in, in extreme pain most of his adult life because he was in, I know two for sure, and I think three crashes, airplane crashes, when he was young. One of them, he was doing an aerobat, you know, aerobatic loops, uh-huh. and he miscalculated his height. And let's you know, let's go over here. Let's say this is uh, this is the uh, rudder paddle. This is his foot. When they when when he hit the ground, his feet 
just literally, uh, just literally collapsed, and his toes bent around the, around the, the rudder pedals, where his toes basically touched his heels. So he shattered all the bones, all the small bones in both his feet. And so for most of his adult life, he suffered from incredible pain. And when I saw him in 2015, I didn't think he'd make it through the end of the month. Uh-huh. And he did, uh, thank, thanks to you know probably his daughter, uh-huh. both two of his daughters. He was on. He was in so much pain that the doctors were prescribing, you know, a lethal dose of uh, oxycodone type of medication for the pain, and he was sleeping for four or five days at a time, up for a couple hours, then crash, boom, he's you know down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, his daughters finally felt that uh, if they didn't do something, uh, he would die. Mm-hmm. So they convinced him to go to a uh, try holistic medicine. So he got him off all of his uh, opioids and you know, put him on you know, na- you know, natural natural path type of uh, uh, herbs and spices and whatever. Uh-huh. And he was able to get completely off of uh, all the nasty narcotics that they used to keep his feet uh, keep him from uh, dying of pain. Multiple times he thought he said he was going to cut his feet off because they were they and just go with stumps. Right. Athlete, you know, the athletes do it, and you know, so but never did. And I saw him last November, and he was so weak that he could you know, he couldn't even reach across his desk to shake my hand. Wow! Uh, and I felt bad, but I. I but he was he was still this uh the same crazy jerk that he was uh way way back when so when, when we think about area 51 i mean what everybody automatically thinks of is hidden spaceships and stuff like that i mean nothing was going on like that to your knowledge right no no and dave fruhoff who was the sr71 pilot that chased a ufo right when he retired in uh 1979, he got a job, ended up, he became facility manager at Area 51. He was there for about five years. And he knew almost everybody that was there. Mm-hmm. But you don't go ask questions. You're, you're, you're working in an environment where you need a queue clearance or higher to even be there. Even as a janitor. I mean, you, had, you really had to have a, your background really checked. Mm-hmm. And uh, once he said after he was there about a year, he, uh, he at the club, everybody went to it, regardless of what your rank was. Uh, yeah, he asked a couple couple guys that he knew had been there for a long time. Hey, did we had did we ever fly anything out here that could beat the pants off an SR seventy one? I mean, like times four or five times faster. Everybody said no. So he figures he chased it. He chased a real honest to goodness UFO. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, um, but because of John Lear, my friend's friendship with Lear, I was the, uh, one of the first people outside the air force or Lockheed mm-hmm. to photograph the F-117. They had announced the existence of the F-117 in November of, uh, 89 or 88, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the B-2, I think, was on the 11th, and the F-117 was on the 22nd, or vice versa. And 
I, I, I was in Las Vegas. It was the first week of uh, January of 1989. And I'm over visiting John Lear. And then said, well, let's go up to Tonopah and see what we can see up at the, uh, you know, the other end of the test site. So we uh, jump in, this, jump in uh, my car, my rent-a-car. We're, we we're heading north on US 95. We're just north of Scotty's Junction. And Scotty's Junction is sort of infamous. It was you know, one of the multiple places in the state of Nevada that had a legal house of ill repute, better known as a cat house or a whore house. Yeah. But they hadn't they hadn't paid all their their taxes, so the federal government took it over, and they ran it into the ground. I don't know how that's humanly possible, but they ran it into the ground. But that's neither. So about ten miles north of Scotty's Junction on US ninety five, we're just cruising at seventy five miles an hour, and right right in front of us, you know, cutting across the road at about fifteen hundred feet was an F one seventeen. I about crashed the car. <laughs> I mean, it, you talk about something that was exciting. So we, we go into Tonopah, we grab a quick bite. We head out uh, east on US 6. You go about 14 miles, the big sign, Tonopah Test Range. So we turn down that road. You go down 18 miles. You run into the main gate. You can see where the man camp is. But I can't get on the base because it's a restricted area. But, so we just go along the north end of the fence line and we're public lands and we're looking down on the entire base. And you can, any, any one of your uh, listening audiences can do the same thing today. They, you're not, you're not be in any trouble. They may try to harass you out of the area, but you're on public lands. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, you know, we drive down about two miles down the uh, fence line and you can see the whole base at Tonopah Test Range. And I'm just, I'm getting really excited. And I look to the north and there's a black, big black fuzzy ball with a light on the bottom and a little small white, bluish white with a light on the bottom. Figure, well, it's gotta be, it's gotta be an F-117 and a chase, chase airplane. And sure shooting it was. Now this is 89, this is before there were digital cameras. Mm -hmm. Normally, I shot with Kodachrome, either six, 25 or 64, but it takes 10 days to get it processed. You send it to Finley, Ohio, you buy the mailers, you send it to Finley, they process it, and they mail it back to you. So I'm, running, I'm using, using print film, Kodacolor 100. I had a Nikon. I had good, a really good telephoto lens. And I'm up there already. I have 36 exposures, and this airplane's coming into view and as it's getting closer, my whole body is starting to vibrate. I was like a 10-year-old boy seeing a naked woman for the first time. I mean, I mean, I almost couldn't breathe. And I'm, and I'm shooting, and it was, uh, you know, I, I have it focused, but, you know, I, my, my body's shaking so much, I didn't know if, I had, if anything was going to turn out. So soon it went by us, you know, I totally, we waited for it to touch down, pop the chute, and said let's get back to vegas we can go to a photo mat so i can get this film processed so we jump and jump in the car we head back to us6 we go to warm springs turn down the extraterrestrial highway it wasn't called that yet uh -huh. and we stopped at the little alien i think i think in 1989 it was still the uh rachel bar and grill joe and pat travis hadn't changed the name of it yet 
for the first time I was there, I was the first time I was at the Little Alien, which turned out to be the Little Alien. It was in was in '87. And you talk about middle of nowhere. That's the middle of nowhere. So we, you know, we stop in we stop in Rachel. We you know, grab a bite at the Little Alien, you know, visit with you know, Joe and Pat Travis. Then we head off to Vegas. And I knew we were going to get there after the photo mats were closed. And if you don't have white hair on top of your head, if you have hair, you probably don't know what a photo mat is. Oh, Basic, yeah. Basically, there, you know, where there are coffee baristas selling coffee, there used to be a thing called a photo mat where you go by and you know drop off your film, pick it up the next day or two days later, and that's how you processed it. Mm-hmm. So I knew all the photomats would be closed. That means I had to wait two or three days to get the film. And I was, I'm really not happy, but I'm thrilled to have, I, I saw it from my, with my own eyes. So we get to Lear's house. It's about quarter after 9 p.m. And he said, uh, I have a friend coming over. He just moved here from uh, Albuquerque. He worked at Sandia. And he's interviewing for a job out in the desert. He doesn't know what or where, but it's out in the desert. So about 10 minutes after we got there, uh, the doorbell rings. Lear goes down to the door, brings this nice, excuse me, young man into his study. And if anybody here has ever been in John Lear's study, it is a place to behold. It's messy, but there, there's no room to put anything else on the walls. And it's probably a 25 by 25 foot room. And you, and, you, and you had to work your way around because there's so much stuff. It's almost like a mini museum. So John goes out to there. The guy comes in and introduces himself as Bob Lazar. He just moved here from Albuquerque. So I told him what we had just done. And I told him that we were, I was frustrated because I have to wait till tomorrow to get my film processed. And he said, well, I have a C41 processing unit at home because he did, he went film processing for realtors. Mm-hmm. As you know, he was, he was always, he was always good at making money doing something. So he said, well, I live over in West Charleston. Let's, let's jump in my car. Let's go process your film. See if it needs good. So we jump in the car. We're about a block from Lear's place. And he looks at me, he says, you know, I feel sorry for that dumb SOB Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, Jackass, he's from the world's famous aviation family. I mean, his dad brought the Learjet to the world, and this SOB believes in UFOs. Huh. She, he says, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. And said, you couldn't put a gun to my head to convince me that UFOs were real. Well, about a year later, he was silhouetted head with the name of Jared talking about doing reverse engineering on alien spacecraft at a place <laughs> yeah. called S4. And, and so I've been friends with Bob Lazar since uh, January of 1989. And uh, we're having a gathering. I got Dave Scott from uh, Spaced Out Radio, you know, the uh, uh, UFO garage guys and a bunch of others. We're all meeting at uh, on the 23rd, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th at the Gold Nugget. Saturday is going to be for the public to come and Q&A. Uh, there's going to be about 15 of us uh, who do what I do. So we'll be able to answer almost any question anybody has. And apparently it's it's uh, it's doing it, it. A lot of people have signed up for it. And then from there, 
Uh, I, I'm going to go visit a friend of mine who's uh, director of engineering at Virgin Galactic at Mojave. And that Monday, uh, Monday night, I'm going to be at uh, Sunny Conway's place on uh, the Paranormal Chop Shop. And we're I was there last year, and we wanna we were on the air for five and a half hours. And I finally had to quit because I lost my voice. <laughs> and then from there, I go up to Beale Air Force Base, and on uh, April twenty uh, seventh, I'm giving a presentation on the history and development of the Blackbird to the officers and senior NCOs at Beale Air Force Base which I find ironic as hell. I mean, I was escorted off Beale a couple of different times because I was asking too many questions and taking pictures. <laughs> and, and, you know, 30 years later, you know, almost 40 years later, I'm back uh, giving a presentation to these guys who have never seen an SR-71 fly. The last SR left Beale in March of 1990. Oh, I'm sad. And incredible plane. It's like you say, it doesn't look as big in the sky as it does when it's on the ground. When I saw it, it on the ground, I couldn't believe how, how how big an airplane it was. It's as big as a DC nine. Yes. And the A twelve only carried one guy. The rest of it's fuel. Yes. An SR seventy one can can they can overfill it with thirteen thousand gallons of JP seven. It'll go. It'll go through at least uh, eighty thousand pounds of that, or you know, close to nine hundred uh, nine thousand gallons in an hour and fifteen minutes. But you've already gone th over three thousand miles. I mean, mm -hmm. everything. Everything about the Blackbird is one of a kind. Everything about the Blackbird is unique. There's. It has no peers anywhere in the world. The Russians say, "Oh, our, our MiG twenty five could catch it." Yeah, you could try to catch it, but you burn out the engines after about 90 seconds. Um, and, and literally the engines are, are garbage after that. I said, well, the Foxhound, the MiG-31, it could catch it. Well, you have to know where it's at first. Mm -hmm. most, most radars, you're looking down here. This He's he's flying up there. So if you're not looking up there, uh, and back when it was operational, most surface-to-air missiles were boost glide. So you're going from the equivalent of sea level to 85,000 feet. You have a five-second window to see this lock-on launch. And because there's no virtually no air up there, you have to hit the airplane. Overpressure cannot damage the SR-71 or the A-12. If, you, the, if, you, if your computers were, were quick enough, and they, aren't, they weren't back then, where you could shoot in front of it, then blow up. Uh, a fragmentation type warhead where you have a lot of metal debris where you can fod where you can fod the engines or the inlet or whatever mm -hmm. um, but that didn't exist back then uh, how it's accurate just, were the cameras on there you know, when, they, when they took photos down because I know there's stories about being able to take a picture of a car you know the, 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 the face card of a card deck with the U2s and, and how clear it was when I, when I was stationed at Lowry Air Force Base, they had the photo interpretation school at Lowry. And everything in there was secret and above. Mm -hmm. But I was putting some equipment in there. I had, I had access to every everything at Lowry, like I did at Edwards and in Elmendorf and whatever. Uh, they had an exhibit in the hallway. It was from a U-2 
which used a similar type camera as the, the Blackbirds used. And it showed a picture of Russia, Soviet Union. You can see the Moscow River. You can sort of make out Red Square. This is all from the same negative. The next shot, it's blown up. You can see it's Red Square. You can see the Kremlin. You can barely make out cars. The next frame, they blew it up again. You can actually make out cars, and you can see people. The fourth frame, you can, you can see there's some guy sitting on a park bench reading a newspaper. And the final one is the newspaper. It had eight-inch headlines, but you can read them. This was 1962. Wow. And it was from a non-classified system. They, they, they say, and I don't know for sure, but the A12 cameras were much better than the SR cameras. The SR cameras you know, only had to be able to tell a T-72 from a T-80 Russian tank, main battle tank. But with either the Type 1 or the Type 4 camera, it was either ITAC or Kodak. Uh, the Perkins, Elman, Perkins Elmer was also one of them. With, they had 19-inch wide film. The camera weighed 830 pounds, and it fit in the Q-Bay where the reconnaissance systems operator oper flew in an SR-71. That, that Q-Bay was pressurized and refrigerated, and that's where the camera was. And they could read your baseball cap from 80,000 feet See? if you were outside. That's crazy. That's <laughs> and, crazy. That, and that is ancient technology. Yeah, most exactly. most anything, now. most anything that our government releases today is probably eight to ten years old or yeah. older. Yeah, you can imagine what it looks like. That. The other thing I was going to say is that you know, with Area Fifty One, you know, stealth technology, I can see how people at night would mistake those planes for UFOs. I mean, I live like I live probably about four miles from, from McClellan here where they were doing repairs on planes. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was there uh, three different times. Yeah. They would bring the stealth, you know, the, the stealth stuff in at night. Yeah. Especially the wing. I used to call it the flying wing, but they would bring the, the, they would bring the wing in and there were no lights on there except for what was on the wings, you yeah. know, the little, the little running lights. And you could think, you know, by seeing that thing come in because all you saw was, a, was black and then the lights. You would think that it's, some, it's something out of this world. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first time I saw the F-117 when I wasn't shaking, I thought the airplane was changing shape. The sun was going down. It's faceted, so the light was was changing. And, and, and if you look at an F-117 head on, it's a, it's a classic UFO shape. Yes. If you look at it head on. Yes. And the other thing... Uh, Ben Rich said that the F-117 was the best flying, the best handling of any airplane that he'd ever been involved in. But because it's faceted and because it's ugly, and you know, the, the nickname for it was the cockroach. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks was, like a, it had a weird shape to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I have pieces and parts of an F-117. Um, I have pieces and parts of, of Crash Blackbirds and XB-70. Uh, and I have uh, an, an incredible collection of Blackbird instruments. They've all gone at least Mach 3.2. Uh, 
And, That's great. And one of these one of these days, I haven't done. I have, I have a, a, a Blackbird fanatic friend of mine who lives in uh, Louisiana, uh, Ron Gerard. He want he wants my A12 triple display indicator and my stabilization augmentation uh, box that came out of one of the M21s. And I told him, I said, well, you better inherit a lot of money because these aren't going to be cheap because I'm eventually I'm going to sell them. And right. God forbid, if, if something happened to my sweet wife, uh, I would end up selling the house eventually. I have a rescued German Shepherd dog. And as long as Scarlett is around giving me, you know, giving me loves and licks, uh, well, I will always keep the house regardless of what happens. Uh, but my, my wife has been battling cancer. And and uh, she had emergency brain surgery here well, on uh, February 25th. She had a she had a brain aneurysm and a and a malignant brain tumor that they got it out. But she's going through X-ray uh, treatment right now, radiation treatment. Uh -huh. But she had her right kidney removed th three years ago because it was it was cancer. So it's one of the things you got to live with. But I. Uh, uh, I, I live. I live here in the Greater Tucson area. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I'm a class in 1963 of Los Altos High School, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh -huh. And you couldn't give me enough money to move back there. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just it's just too nuts. Now I lived in Hawaii for four years. I was the I like associate. I was the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. That was my that was my fun job. And then I re when I retired, I, I got got married again. And uh, my wife and I ended up here in the beautiful town of Oro Valley, Arizona. It's a suburb of Tucson. And I, I, I love it here. It's hot in the summer, but I don't shovel snow. I lived in Minnesota for 27 years. I've been to a I've station in Alaska, station in Denver. I see my share of snow. I don't ever want to shovel snow again. <laughs> But I would, I, I would possibly, if it was just me, uh, I don't know if I can move back with my son. I love him to pieces, but he, but he's, a, he's born and raised, and he's a, he's, he's a Minnesotan through and through. Uh, I would possibly go back to Hawaii. And I, I mean, I, I have a place. I, I have already, I've already been told that, hey, we'll set you up in a place to live. That's the. That's the cousin brothers, Blake and, and Brent Cousins. I was just them this weekend. I was with uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Greer had a had an event uh, there in uh, Fountain Hills, Arizona, at one of the, the Indian casinos. They had seven hundred people in there, and uh, it was talking about the uh, the release of uh, Above Top Secret, their expose on things that go bump in the night. Where I'm, where I'm, you know. Uh, Michael Schratt was was there. Michael's a dear, dear friend of mine. And uh, Michael Schratt, uh, John DeSosa, and I are the, the three primaries uh, talking heads in the, uh, the, the Cousin Brothers, Dr. Greer, uh, UFO, uh, Above Top Secret. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, above top secret. So I I've seen bits and pieces of it. I haven't I haven't I just got home from the uh, the function yesterday, and I slept all day yesterday, and today I'm you know scrambling to get everything ready for uh, the tax man. 
There you so, go. but uh, that sort of covers it. And we've been going two hours. Oh, two hours. <laughs> I could talk to you all night, but I can't. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I could too. Uh, I, but my, this has been absolutely a blast. I would love to have you come back on sometime. Anytime. That's a possibility because there's still so much more I, I, I want to ask you. You know, I haven't talked to anybody about airplanes in like 12 years since my dad died. Oh, geez. Because well, he and I used to have these long conversations about different planes. And um, I think the vice, I think the SR 71 was his favorite because, like I said, when we saw it's, every, it's everybody's favorite. And they turned that bad boy like straight up. He'd never seen anything go straight up like that before. Yeah. Yeah. Plane shot the back and stuff and went, you know. So yeah. that really got him when they did that. The other yeah. one, uh, Instagram is running a lot of uh, military plane photos, and it was funny because they had a V V fifty two Stratofortress on yesterday, and the guy and, and then the caption was, "Well, what what plane is this?" And it's fun to read the captions because you get the ones that say it changes civilization and all this. And I and and, and I get on there and I'm like, "Yeah, but what you don't realize, young young un." Is the is that whisper mode when you see that thing cut, you know come over and it's so quiet because by the time you hear it it's already dropped its payload. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's it's moving away from you at thirty two hundred feet per second. Yeah, yeah, that's but all it, in butt. That's all in butt. So. As big as that thing is, it is just yeah. silent when it comes over. It's spooky, yeah. but now, it's really cool. I just so you know, you probably came to that conclusion in our two hours here. I don't give yes or no answers. <laughs> it's always it's always cracked me up. I would be asking the answer, and I'm still giving the answer. So, oh, we have to go to break. <laughs> Come back from break, and I'm still answering the the first question. There you go. Yeah, so that's fun. Hey, All I had right. a one. I had a wonderful time. I'm more than happy. More than happy to uh, to come back. Absolutely, I will definitely get you back on because I just love talking. I love talking to you. I love super, it. Super. Super. And, and, and Travis, you know. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I used to I used to stay at Travis when I, when I'd be up in the Bay Area because everything else is so damn expensive. Yeah. Uh, this time I'm staying at Beale uh, as a reti as retired military. I I can I can do that. So. Absolutely. Uh, but All I right. have uh, I also have my Area 51 patch. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was the one that was in Popular Science. Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, I had a, a bunch of the stickers made, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go to base ops at Edwards. I'm going to go to base ops at uh, Nellis, and also at Beale, and I'm going to put these on their base op windows where they have all the you know, all the squadron stickers. There's going to be an Area 51. There you go. Chrome dialing test facility sticker. All right. So, well, you have a good evening, and I will. Try I will. On again. This was great. I, I, I think I think you're a great guy, and. Uh, Wow, that's all I can say is wow. Well, I'm see, I'm I'm delighted to be here, and I'm. Uh, ooh, wow, I think it's really bright. <laughs> uh, well, I just I just I, I, I just shrunk the the, the, uh, the screen down. Yeah, so I will say I turned into a you know chalk man here. So out now. All right, so all I have right. to go. I have to go eat and uh, be nice to my wife. Yeah, okay. you have a you have a wonderful evening. You have a great week. What's left of it? Okay. And and until the next time, you uh, you light up the airwaves and uh, give the world answers that they're they're asking for. There we go. All right? Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Have a good all one. Right. Yeah. All you right. take care. Thanks. Thanks for everything. I enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you, sir.
Wow, that's all I can say about that. I like I said, I haven't talked to anybody about airplanes since my father died, and uh, it's something my dad and I would always do. In fact, what I've got what I didn't tell anyone was I actually flew on the Concorde from New York to London. That was an incredible trip, you know, when when, when we hit supersonic speed, and of course me and then the Concorde came to Sacramento, and because they were thinking about putting a runway in and all this was going on. I got photos and somewhere in my archives when I had like a normal camera and not a digital camera back in the old days, I, I have footage of the Concord here in Sacramento. But uh, anyway, I'm glad you guys stuck with me. I think we learned a lot about the SR-71 Blackbird. I'm definitely going to get him back on because I have a lot of questions about other planes in like Area 51 and stuff. But I mean, it was, it, it was incredible. It was more than I could have asked for and uh, I loved every second of it. Tomorrow night we're back on at 6:30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we're going to be talking trauma. We're shifting gears. We're putting on the we're putting on the news reporter hat. So we're going to be talking about different types of trauma uh, with with Yvonne Smith. So she'll be with us tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. Pacific. Um, uh, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, there's a little ghost down in the bottom right hand corner down there with a magnifying glass on a and a Sherlock Holmes hat. Please press that button to subscribe. We've got more than 260 videos over there that you can check out of different topics. Like tonight, you know, we're completely away from ghost hunting and stuff. Talked about talked about secret airplanes, and tomorrow we're talking about trauma. So, I mean, we like to vary what we're doing. Also, my gosh, for the people who listen to my podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you. I knew we were going to catch on at some point. It was going to be a snowball thing, and it's happening. And it happened last month. And it's really happening this month. And our number, our download numbers are, are huge right now. Huge. And I'm real excited about that. It's, it's been an exciting last three days for me to, to watch those numbers. And so we're, we, we've actually exceeded last month's numbers already. And we've got three weeks to go. So keep it up. Keep sharing the show with your friends and keep letting people know about us. Because we're a darn good show, I think so. And uh, as, as somebody once said, uh, one of our loyal listeners once said, YouTube gives us no love. You know, there's just no love from YouTube, but as far as the, as far as the podcast goes, you guys are showing a lot of love, and I really, really appreciate it. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. You know, share it with your family, share it with your friends, whatever. Or even if you have enemies you can't stand, and you can't stand me, or you can't stand my show, share it with the enemies, okay? Because we're trying to spread the word about this show. It's a good show. We're like the little engine that could. We keep plugging along, and and, and, and it's a good show, and I, and I want to get the word out about it. You can check us out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, or if you're interested in our paranormal services, you can check us out at CaliforniaHaunts.org, right? Okay. And again, please do, if you're watching from YouTube, please do subscribe. I got a little ticker running at the bottom. Um, all our services are free as far as being a paranormal investigation team. Everything's free that we do. And because of that, um, technically, everything was out of my pocket, whether it's equipment or stuff for the show, computers, you know, paying for the Internet here, paying for the StreamYard service, RSS for the podcast and all that. It all comes out of my pocket. So if you could help me out a little bit with that, I would really appreciate it. Um, you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts and do it from there. I'd really appreciate it because I love this show. I, I love bringing it to you. I love having it, you know, bringing these different guests to you. And it's what I do. I'm a journalist. Journalist, photojournalist, it's my thing, you know. I love to interview people. So if you could find it in your heart to donate and help us out and keep this thing going on the air and make it a little easier on me, you know, on the bills, that would be great. Again, that's PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or at Venmo, just type in California Haunts. 
Anyway, I want to thank you. And uh, again, once again, let me get my little button set up here so I don't screw up buttons. <laughs> and uh, thank you all for coming tonight. And again, tomorrow we will have Yvonne Smith on. And she will be talking about trauma. And, and the focus on her trauma, I believe, was people that, that, were, that were upset leading up to 911 and then following 911. But uh, we're also going to talk about different types of trauma. So uh, check it in tomorrow. We're going to have a put, put on my news hat, you know, uh, my news reporter hat on and talk with her about that. Anyway, thank you again, and I will see you all tomorrow. Have a good one.